Our next story brings us to a cafe on the campus of Purdue University. And a simple question that I have long wanted to ask of a certain sociology professor. Uh, you want me to do oh, that yeah. now? Yes, yes, sorry. <laughs> I think sorry. you're going to do uh, that. Yes, I'm, I'm going to. Oh, so would you please do that? <laughs> okay. Yes, my name's Scott Feld. I'm a professor of sociology here at Purdue University. Okay, uh, so my first question to you is, uh, do your friends have more friends than you do? Uh, I'm sure that my friends have more friends than I do, on average. That may seem like an odd, even mean question to ask a person, but I'm going to ask you to trust that I have my reasons, which will become clear later on. Instead of dwelling on that, let's talk about Professor Feld. A sociologist might seem like an odd choice of interview subject for a show all about mathematics. But Scott Feld isn't your typical sociologist. Before he started going down the sociological path, he studied mathematics. In fact, that mathematical training has informed the way that he approaches sociological problems. The task is to find is to define sociological problems that are mathematically describable and solvable. I mean, I, I mean, if you can find the f- problems, the solutions usually follow. I, I think the problem with sociology as a field, why it's not more productive than it is, is because sociologists try to address impossible problems. I mean, and I think that there's probably an analogy in physics, as long as you know, physicists were trying to turn lead into gold, they weren't going to make a lot of progress on that. And uh, I think sociologists are busy trying to solve problems of racism and inequality and, and solve all the world's problems at one time. And those are just the they're important problems, but they're too big problems to, to be defined and, and, and managed and come up with any kind of solutions. The work that brought Professor Feld to my attention came out of his collaboration with Bernie Groffman, a professor at the University of California, Irvine, on how people understand and experience the world. In particular, the way that people do not really understand the world. This led them to research the class size paradox. The class size paradox was basically realizing that that at, say, at universities or any place like that, there are, there are class sizes, uh, there are college classes that have five, 30 people, 100 people, 300 people, and that colleges would say the average class size was of something like 30. But somehow and other students were rarely in small classes and they couldn't necessarily understand why, how could the college, how could the average class size be 30 when, when all their classes were big? Um, and so what we realized was that the reason is because for every 100-person class, there are 100 people in it, and for every 10-person class, there are only 10 people in it. And so uh, if all classes were size 30, everybody would experience 30, 30-person classes, but as soon as you have variation, a lot of people experience the big classes and practically nobody experiences the little classes. So the reality is that if the if college has an average class size of 30, then the students experience an average class size of 80 or something like that, depending on the specific numbers. And that seemed to me an important insight that we published 40 years ago, I don't know, 35 years ago, that nobody's paid any attention to ever since. While no one may have paid attention to the paper on the class size paradox, that didn't mean it was an uninteresting area of study. It just meant that Professor Feld would need to find a topic that would hit a lot closer to home with people than the average college class size. 
I had thought about these ideas of class size paradoxes before and, 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 and the bias in people's experience of certain types of situations. And because I spent a lot of time thinking about networks and talking about them, I, I just sort of came to realize in, in you know, and listening to some discussion that people would, you know, if people were to compare themselves with their their friends, or they would get these kinds of bias samples. And I, I, I sort of, my intuition said this would be true. Okay, and, and, and then, and, and and because those friends have lots of friends, and they would be disproportionately represented. And so I actually sort of explained that to, actually to my friend and colleague to Bernie, and and. It wasn't immediately clear why that should be the case to him, so that meant that I had to keep trying to figure out why it was true and try to ex explain, develop more precise description of what was going on and Isn't why. That? And so what, after I had the insight of, of what was going on, I, I then sat down and tried to actually develop the, the math for why, it, why and under what circumstances it turns out that way. While people's friends and their relative numbers is certainly more central to most people's lives than class sizes. So it would seem that this paper should have a larger impact than the previous one. But more than that, it had a secret weapon. One that is very rarely brought out in the academic article wars. A fantastic name. After he had finished working up the mathematics and the paper was ready to be published, it was titled, Why Your Friends Have More Friends Than You Do. I won't lie, this is easily my favorite academic article title, and is in my top three best titles ever. I mean, with a name? Like why your friends have more friends than you do? How could it not be great? I mean, in some sense, that paper should be three sentences long, <laughs> because the basic point can be made very, very quickly. Um, the rest of the paper is actually just sort of trying to be precise about how, what it means for your friends to be, have more friends than you. Certainly all of your friends don't have more friends than you, so you, the, the idea is, well, do most of your friends have more friends than you, or do the average of your, or is the average among your friends more than you, and is that true for everybody? And so once you start making the question precise, it gets a little bit more complicated, maybe a little less interesting, um, but, you know, you understand the kind of I needed to spell it out, and so I, what I did is I just sort of worked through the, the details of, of of how it worked, and I was I was delighted to discover that it really was the same phenomenon as the, the class size paradox, and so that the math, the basic math was identical. I mean that basically that the, the that the the mean for the friends was the mean for the average person plus the variance over the mean. I mean it's a very very simple formula. What he's talking about is now better known as the friendship paradox. Specifically, it's referring to the phenomenon that in a group of people, more than half of them will have fewer friends than the number of friends their friends have. As you can see, the term paradox is well-deserved here, as that statement did not make much sense. Basically, what it means is if, if, if you've got a set of people in a, in a population or a group, and they all have different numbers of friends. So that some people have 100 friends and some people have two. Um, and friends are always symmetrical. So if you're my friend, I'm your friends. Um, then it, then it, it must turn out that the people with 100 friends are the friends of 100 different people. 
who get to count them among their friends. And the, and the people with two friends are friends with only two different people who get to count them among their friends. And so if people took a, a representative sample of the friends out there, a hundred of them would get a person with a hundred, and two of them would get a person with two, and the, the, the average number of friends of the friends would be the weighted average of the, of the number of friends of people in general. So, so people tend to, to get people with 100 friends 100 times compared with people with two friends two times, so they, they see those people an awful lot. And so the, the, you can calculate the, the, the average number of friends of friends as, as the number of friends weighted by the number of friends. That's what it amounts to. Um, then taking a weighted average in that way is the way it works. So if there's a lot of variation, meaning that there are some people with a very large number of friends, then those people show up in everybody's set of friends and they, and they very disproportionately influence the way people see the world. If there's very little variation, if everybody's pretty much the same, then it doesn't make any difference because then people see, see things appropriately if they don't really weight anybody any more than anybody else. Part of the reason it's important is because lots of studies and lots of have shown that in terms of networks, in terms of anything like this, the variation is usually enormous. Okay, that that it, even the early studies of, of social networks and small groups in, in school classes and things like that showed that there are almost always a couple of one or a couple of people who were very popular, um, and then a lot of people who might have no friends at all or might be. And, and as long as that's the pattern, then that has enormous implications for the way people experience the friends of their friends. And while the title of the paper may seem harsh, Professor Feld had nothing but the best of intentions for the research. But, but the friendship thing, I, I thought that would have implications. Actually, when I wrote the paper, I wrote it with, with a kind of uh, emphasis on the fact that that, that people get, because people's friends have more friends than they do, they, they get the impression that they are somehow socially inadequate relative to the, the rest of the world. Um, and they are deficient, if you will, in numbers of friends compared to the people they're friends with, but those are a rather unrepresentative sample of people. Those are the, all those people with lots of friends. So I, I, I tried to say, you guys shouldn't feel so badly because you know, your friends may have more friends than you do, but those people are unusual. And that if you compared yourself to ordinary people, you'd probably find that you're just about the same as everybody else. Um, and so I was kind of hoping to make people feel better by realizing that their, their, their feelings of inadequacy by comparing themselves to this biased sample would, were, were misplaced and that they really ought to feel better. Everybody I've ever told that to responded by saying they feel worse. <laughs> and <laughs> so somehow or another, they, they, didn't, they didn't use that information in the way that I had hoped them. Because all they did, what seemed to be the common pattern was they, they came, it focused their attention on the fact that their friends had more friends than they, which they ordinarily didn't pay that much attention to. So that made them feel worse. And telling them that that was... You know, that was misleading because average people aren't like that didn't impress them any because their friends were like that. Do you know what else can make people feel poorly? A contagion. Trust me, this, this segue works. Well, a contagion, I mean, 
you know, we, we borrow metaphors and ideas, of course, from biological contagion, where one speaks of the contagion of a germ, but of course one can speak about the contagion of ideas or behaviors, and here we mean just this, a person-to-person-to-person spread oh. of some phenomenon. That was Nicholas Christakis, a physician and social scientist who works as a professor at Harvard University in the departments of healthcare policy, medicine, and sociology. So he is rather qualified to speak about contagions, whether biological or not. In fact, Dr. Kostakis, along with his collaborator James Fowler, conduct research into the relationships between people's social networks and their health. The thing is, in order to do such research, you need those networks. So this is always the problem. Whenever you're trying to discern a network, you need not only the collection of the constituent elements, the nodes in the network, like the people in our case, but you also need information about the ties between people. Either you need to collect this from scratch, uh, for instance, by talking to all the people that are part of the population and asking them who they're connected to. Or nowadays, you can, of course, use um, administrative and electronic data, what we call massive-passive data, phone companies, online social networks, um, blogs, other kinds of data that exist that allow you to discern who's connected to whom. One way or another, though, either by collecting the data from scratch or taking advantage of pre-existing data, communications data, and so forth, you need to discern who's connected to whom. So what can a researcher do if that data isn't available? If you can neither talk to anybody to discern the ties nor take advantage of existing data, you can do some other tricks that give you network information uh, without mapping the whole network, like this friendship paradox trick uh, that, we, um, that we deployed. See, I told you that segue made sense. Now, the reason this so-called friendship paradox is extremely valuable and that we used in some of our work is that you can pick a random sample of people, have them nominate their friends, and those friends will have more friends than they do, will have higher degree and be more central on average in the network. And you can find those people without mapping the network. And now once you've found those people, you can either talk to them or you can passively follow them as we did, and you can treat them, for instance, as a kind of sensor. So in one project we did is we reasoned that the central people should be more likely to get whatever's flowing through the network and more likely to get it sooner in the course of an epidemic. So if we could find these central people and monitor them, we could get an early warning system for what is flowing through the network. Not just predict what's going to happen, not just monitor what's happened in the past about the epidemic, but predict what's going to happen in the future of an epidemic. Because if we see the epidemic spiking in the central people, we know soon it's going to hit the population at large. And so we proved that, uh, working, James Fowler and I, working with a uh, flu outbreak, an H1N1 flu outbreak at Harvard College a year or so ago. We took a random sample of students. We had them nominate their friends. We followed the epidemic both in the random group and in the friend group. And sure enough, it spiked and peaked in the friend group sooner by one metric, six weeks in advance of peaking in the, in the random group. So we, will, we were able to tell that the epidemic was about to strike the population well over a month before anyone else knew. And actually, this idea can work not just with germs, but with the spread of ideas, with the spread of uh, um, information and behaviors, and anything that spreads in the network, you can use this trick to forecast the future. Did you get that? The friendship paradox can help you forecast the future. All joking aside, a six-week early warning on an epidemic is a great result. And this research could well result in advances that might just help save people's lives. I made sure to ask Professor Feld what he thought about this work. So, uh, 
What did you kind of, what was your, your reaction when you then heard about the work that uh, Nicholas Christakis was doing with, with your friendship paradox? I, re I really like that idea um, because it makes perfect sense, but I, I for one, whoops, think that things that make, if, 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 if science and social science could often find things that are obvious once said, I'd be very happy, you know, because a lot of things are obvious once you say them, but nobody paid any, either thought of it or paid any attention to it before. And uh, I'd be perfectly happy if I myself could just sort of discover things that are obvious once I say them. Uh, I mean, at least for a while, I think there's a lot of room for but sort of low-hanging fruit in that regard. Um, and so, and I think that, you know, what they did is, is one of those kinds of things, which is, which makes, you know, why didn't everybody think of that before? Because it seems like an obvious kind of thing to do. But, of course, it is more complicated when you actually get into it, but I, I think it's a great idea. Actually, the professor thinks that they may have stumbled on something even better than they realized. What they wrote in their paper was that, they, that in order to, what they wanted for advanced sensors was people who were centrally located, who were very well connected. And what they said originally is that if they had the whole network mapped out, they could locate the central people and use them as advanced sensors. And they said that they only resorted to using the friends of a random sample as a second best approximation to what they would have preferred to do if they had all the network information. But I think that that's actually not quite right because the central people, if, if central people in a network might themselves be a set of very closely interconnected people who are, I mean, if you picture a network as having a center and a periphery and you take only the central people, you're going to get the people literally in the center. And at least I imagine that you could have a lot of spread of disease in the periphery. I mean, it couldn't spread to the whole network easily just from the periphery to the periphery. But you can get a lot of things going on out in the outskirts without the center getting involved. And if you only paid attention to the few people in the center, you might miss something important going on. On the other hand, I thought that it was brilliant that they took this um, friends of a random sample because that kind of addresses that problem. Because by using a random sample, you're going to get, you're going to represent the periphery as well as the center. But you're also, by using the friends of a random sample, you're getting people that are better connected than a random person. So you are representing the whole network intentionally and deliberately, so you're not going to miss isolated pockets of disease. Okay? Um, but you're, doing, you're getting a better representation than a random sample because of better representation in the sense of representing where the disease happens, because the people with more ties are more likely to be where the disease happens, and you want to over-represent those as in order to find how much disease is out there. Starting with the sizes of college classes and ending with predicting epidemics is not too shabby for an idea that was just trying to explain how people experience the world. And who knows if it's done yet. The basic point is that, uh, well, the basic point of the Friends Paradox and of Class Size Paradox is, 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 is that people experience the world selectively. And, they, and that selection has to do with certain patterns of experience, like people experience things in groups. So people experience things in classes, people ha ha experience things in, in various bunches. They don't, ex experiences are not random, individual, isolated experiences. 
And that has very broad set of implications for the patterns of experience and the overall uh, experience of, of, of a society at large and of the way people perceive that society. That has broad implications, only some of which we've sort of tapped into a little bit. Uh, but it's hard to anticipate. I guess maybe like all networks, you see the next step, but the step after that may not be visible yet until you take that step fully and you get closer to the, and then you can look to the next step from there.